imagine that you live in a walled city of the ancient Near East. And your little city is continuously harassed by an enemy nation. They come every year, they lay siege to your city, they burn your fields, they rob your houses. And it gets so bad that it comes to sort of a critical moment. And the leaders of your city decide you must go to war in a last desperate attempt to gain relief. So you bid farewell to your sons and your husbands and your fathers, and they go off in a last desperate attempt to gain freedom and relief. And you know that this victory, or that this, this battle, is going to be decisive. Because if there is victory, you'll have freedom. But if your men are defeated, it will be the end of everything you know and love. So you watch these guys march off across the ridge, across the horizon, and you begin the terrible task of waiting. You wait for hours, you wait for days, and you wonder, who's going to come back over that horizon? Is it going to be a messenger bringing good news of victory? Or is it going to be a messenger bringing news of defeat? Or is it going to be no messenger? And it's the enemy army themselves burning and plundering as they come, bringing your final ruin. After what seems like forever, finally, a lone figure appears on the horizon. And the whole city goes out to the wall to, to, to look and, and see who this is. And you see that he's running. You see that he's one of yours. And then you see the sign you've been waiting for. His hands are raised in victory. In that moment, you feel the impact of one of the lines from today's epistle reading. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. When the prophet Isaiah first wrote those words, that was the flavor they had. This announcement of victory was an announcement of a military victory. And St. Paul knew that full well when he quoted Isaiah in today's, today's epistle lesson. And that word gospel itself, we all know that gospel means good news. But in the ancient world, at least in some contexts, gospel was a very specific kind of good news. It was the announcement of a victory, political, military there's an inscription that archaeologists found. Um, they found it some time ago. It's in the ancient city of Priene, modern-day Turkey. It dates from 9 B.C., a little bit before Jesus was born. And this inscription is about, it refers to the birth of Caesar Augustus. And it says, uh, he's, he was a great man, he ended war, he won a great victory, he inaugurated a glorious new age for the Roman Empire. And the word the inscription uses is gospel. The gospel of Caesar Augustus. And remember, this is before Jesus was born. Before gospel was a Christian or a religious word, it had that political and military connotation. So that means when some of the earliest people heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ, they would have thought, ah, this means this man Jesus, he must be a new king. He must have won a victory. He must be bringing in a new era. 
And if they thought that way, they would be right. Right? That's what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to conquer. He came to end the reign of sin. He came to end the reign of death. He came to end the reign of the devil. He came to establish the kingdom of God. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is that announcement of his victory. Now, we Christians, we traditionally number the enemies of God's people, our enemies, as three. Three tyrants. Sin, death, the devil, right? Sin is a tyrant. Now, I know that's debated in modern times, right? A lot of people say, no, sin is not, not, not a, a tyrant. Sin is freedom. People will say, ah, Christianity is restrictive. God's law is this binding, limiting rule. But sin is freedom, right? You do what you want, no limits, no rules, no boundaries. But to speak about sin in that way, it's like a madman locked in his prison cell and he is boasting to the outside world that they're all locked out and they can't enjoy the freedom he has in his cell. Right? That's what sin is like. Sin promises freedom, but the result is tyranny. Jesus said, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Anyone who has ever struggled with addiction can tell you that, right? There's no freedom in addiction. Sin forces you to obey. To obey every, every, every lust, every passion, every impulse. Or think about the times when you've held a grudge. We, we, we always say the phrase, hold a grudge, and yet it might be more accurate to say, the grudge holds you, and it won't let you go. The grudge forces you to relive the bitterness and the hurt that someone else has caused to you, and it just plays over and over in your mind. It's slavery. Or even think about so-called little sins, right? The, the, the sin of covetousness, right? Coveting does not get the press that other sins get. It doesn't seem as big. And yet, what untold misery coveting causes. When you covet, you become a slave to dissatisfaction. No matter what you get in life, you cannot be happy because you are always comparing, you know, your drab life with someone else's Facebook posts, right? Your possessions with someone's greater possessions. You're a slave to dissatisfaction. Sin is a tyrant. The second great tyrant is death. St. Paul writes, Death reigned from the time of Adam. Death reigned through that one man. Sin is often sneaky. It looks like a thief. But death crushes like a hammer. It steals our joy in life. It, it literally steals our loved ones. And in our moments of honest reflection, we know death is coming for each one of us. And that, that bothers us. It really does. We try to put it out of our minds, but the thought keeps returning. And we make grim little jokes about the onset of age, right? Bifocals, you know, gray hair, wrinkles, pains. And we chuckle about those things. <laughs> but inside, we're not laughing, are we? 
Because death is a horror. It's the wages of sin. It's a tyrant. And then along with the tyranny of sin, the tyranny of death, there's the tyranny of the devil. And I know in, 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 Western, in the Western world, in, in, in America, a lot of people aren't aware of the devil's workings. In fact, there's a lot of people who even deny that there is such a thing as the devil. But I can tell you that we are the exception. Okay? We are the exception to the rule. In Tanzania, where I live, in most parts of the world, the works of Satan, witchcraft, spiritism, those are forces of evil that have to be dealt with on a daily basis. I have never heard someone in Tanzania say something like, I'm spiritual but not religious. Right? As though you have some sort of choice whether you want to be spiritual or not. They speak much more concretely. They say, I am coping with spirits. Malicious spirits. Oppressive spirits that are ruining my life. They recognize that the devil is a tyrant. And if people in, in the West are ignorant of the devil's schemes, it only makes those schemes more effective. So that is our sinful condition in this fallen world. We, we, we look around us, we see the beauty of God's creation, and we have this sense that there must be more to life than what we are experiencing, experiencing, and yet we live under the weight of oppression, the tyranny of sin, death, and the devil. One of my favorite scenes from Peter Jackson's film adaptation of The Lord of the Rings comes in the third movie, The Return of the King. And it's one of the darkest moments of the film. And uh, it, it's where the evil armies of Mordor, you know, they've come against the city of Minas Tirith. They've surrounded it and they've been battering the walls. And finally they break through the gates. And the enemies are just flooding into the city. And it looks like it's the end. The city is overrun. All hope is lost. And then in that darkest moment, you hear a horn, right? And for those of you who have seen the movie, it's the horn of King Theoden and the riders of the Rohirrim. They appear on this distant ridge. And the way Jackson sets up the scene, it's like the light from behind them is pushing back the darkness. And it's one of those moments that makes the audience think, either consciously or unconsciously, how beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news. That's fiction. <laughs> But it, remind, it reminds us of a greater announcement. When the angel came to those shepherds outside of Bethlehem and said, Behold unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Or as Martin Luther put it in the words of his famous hymn, But now a champion comes to fight, whom God himself elected. Jesus Christ was born to do battle. And the gospel is the announcement of his victory. In, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said, he asked a question. He said, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. I love those words of Jesus because of the picture they leave in my mind. Because I, I, I picture Satan tied up in his own house, 
bound and gagged, whimpering in a corner somewhere because he's been robbed. <laughs> Satan was the strong man, but Jesus Christ is the stronger man. And he took what belonged to Satan. And what was the plunder that Jesus took? It's you and me. We are no longer slaves to Satan and his tyranny. We belong to Jesus. Jesus took what belonged to Satan. He also took what belonged to death. In Revelation chapter 1, Jesus says, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So what does it mean when Jesus talks about keys? Right? Well, keys are, are, are they're a symbol of authority, of power. Jesus is the master of death and Hades. So what that means is, someday you may die, if, you, if Jesus does not return before that, and you will be locked in your grave. Jesus has the keys. On the last day, He will unlock your grave. He will raise your body from death to life everlasting. When we face our own mortality and the death of our loved ones, there is great comfort in this that our dear Savior Jesus has already preceded us in death and has passed through it to resurrection. Death looms up as this horrifying, unimaginable terror, and Jesus Christ says, been there, done that. Literally. Not only has He passed through death, He owns the place. He has the keys of death and Hades. St. Paul writes, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Death cannot take you away from Jesus. Jesus owns death. And on the last day He will raise you to everlasting life, just as He Himself rose on that glorious Easter Sunday morning. These days... There's few people alive who remember the end of World War II. But I think probably all of us have seen pictures of the, summer of, the spring and summer of 1945, when the news of, of Germany's surrender and then Japan's surrender came to U.S. soil. And there were ticker tape parades and spontaneous celebrations in the, in the streets. And it's interesting to think about the moment when the news arrived here, here on American soil. Because it's news, and on the one hand, nothing changed, but on the other hand, everything changed. And what I mean is this. When the news came of, of, of Germany and Japan's surrender, the soldiers were still overseas. Right? The, the ships are still overseas. The tanks are still overseas. Materially, nothing changed. And yet it's undeniable that the news changed everything, right? One instant, one moment. The gospel of Jesus Christ works a little bit like that. You've come here to this house of worship this morning, and then you're going to go home, and in one sense, nothing is going to change. You're going back to the same house, same family, same job, same life, same day-to-day -day struggles. And yet, on the other hand, the gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. Every time you come to this house of worship, 
you hear an announcement of victory. You hear that Jesus Christ fought a battle some 2,000 years ago for your sake. And the result of that is that you and God are now reconciled. God does not count your sin against you. There is peace between you and God. And death has surrendered. Satan has been robbed. You are no longer a slave to sin, but you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That is gospel. You all know that I work overseas in, in Tanzania. I do missionary work. And people sometimes say unflattering things about missionary work. <laughs> um, maybe one of the most common is folks will say, missionary work, that's just colonialism. It's just a renewed form of colonialism in disguise. And when I hear that, my first thought is always nonsense, that's, that's absurd. Mission work is not colonialism. And then on second thought, I think, wait, colonialism is exactly what mission work is. Here in this world, dominated by the, the tyranny of sin, death, and the devil, God is establishing a colony of heaven. God is building a kingdom. <laughs> In fact, we pray for this every single Sunday. We say, Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And in the catechism, we explain what that means. We say, the kingdom of God certainly comes by itself without our prayer, but we pray in this petition that it may come to us also. So when we, are, when we pray that, that petition, we are saying, Lord Jesus Christ, colonize me. Colonize my life. Because I am weary of the old tyrants. I am weary of the shame and the guilt of my sin. Jesus, I am afraid of death. And I am troubled by the work of the devil. Jesus, be my king. Make my life an outpost of heaven on earth. Thy kingdom come. And you know, that has been God's project all along. <laughs> For all of human history, God has been working to bring heaven to earth, to live among his people. Long ago, when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, you know, they came out of Egypt, they're going to the promised land. God told them, build this tabernacle, right? And then in, in the middle, in the Holy of Holies, put the Ark of the Covenant, and there above the cherubim, I will meet with you. God said, I will graciously descend to earth and be in the midst of my people. So we, we could say the tabernacle, was a little piece of heaven on earth. Same thing with the temple later on, right, in Jerusalem. Um, God, God said, I will put my name there. I will dwell in the midst of my people. So the temple, Mount Zion, it was a little bit of heaven on earth. And we all know that in the fullness of time, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh. And St. John tells us he literally tabernacled among us. So Jesus is the new and greater tabernacle, the new and greater temple. He is also known as Emmanuel, God with us. In Jesus Christ, heaven came to earth. 
And now what does God say about us, His church? We are the body of Christ. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God is present with us. Here in this house, where the gospel is proclaimed, where the sacraments are administered, we have a little piece of heaven on earth, here in the liturgy. And Jesus' purpose is that this kingdom would always expand. He told his disciples, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And they did that, didn't they? St. Paul took the gospel to Europe. According to church history, St. Thomas took the gospel to Asia. St. Mark took the gospel to Africa. Many centuries later, the gospel came to these Americas also. But every place where those, those messengers went, it was the same announcement. They said, good news, a new king has arrived on the scene. He has won a great battle, and the old tyrants have been overthrown. The name of the king is Jesus Christ. He was crucified and he rose again. He now has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He reigns over heaven on earth. He will return to judge all people, and He will establish a kingdom that has no end. And those who heard and believed that good news, for them everything changed in a moment. And they said to one another, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Amen. The peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen.